Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Living Water. It's a podcast where we're taking the concept of water or the lack of it and using it as a lens through which we can see old Bible stories, perhaps in a new way, or meet new people or have even new meaning. And this episode, I want to take a step back a little bit and address a question that has come up again and again, which is, how do you find these Bible stories and how do you make them work? Uh, As one person in my church told me, Rich, I can listen to your stories and they make a lot of sense, but if I go home and open the Bible, it just looks like words on a page. So my hope is I'm going to show you my method for finding these stories, talk about a few of these, not just one, but a few of these, so we can use them as examples of their use and perhaps even their misuse. I think when someone tells me that they don't think that religion is real or they don't like Christianity or what people have done with the Bible, I will say, well, what do you not like about it? And they tell me, and I'll say, I don't like it either, right? I think the Bible is subject to a lot of misuse, and so perhaps this will serve as a corrective, as well as something instructive when it comes to reading these old stories. Um First of all, I want to tell you a method that I use with every Bible story or teaching, and this is if I'm using it for the podcast or Sunday school or sermon or what have you. I try to remember what a very wise professor told me long ago, which is a text without a context can be a pretext. Now, that's a fancy way of saying what I tell my third grade Bible club every Wednesday here at the church. I tell my third graders that the Bible's not a book. It's a library of books. And if you think of it that way, then it's kind of hard to read it front to back. I know plenty of people have. I've tried and have failed uh, for the simple reason that, for instance, Genesis and Exodus are pretty interesting, but then Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, those are pretty hard sledding, and I didn't make it through those. But I don't feel so bad about it now because I understand that the Bible is a library of books. In fact, the Bible, the word Bible means books. And so these are books of a library. And like I tell my kids, if you go to the library and just pull the first book off the shelf, it might be pretty good. And you pull the next one to it and it might be pretty good, but you keep pulling books and eventually you're going to pull a reference book or you're going to pull up an encyclopedia or a law book or something like that. So that it's really nonsensical to use the library in that way, but rather uh, look up books or things that you want to read, things that are instructive to you. So the text that you read means the words on a page, whatever you read in the Bible, you need to understand the world where they're living. This is where a podcast like mine can help, sort of at least point you to some areas where you can study more. Uh, You want to learn the world that they're living, and then you also want to learn what people have taught about that lesson over the centuries, and then you can do your own reasoned reflection upon that. The Bible invites you to think. It The Bible invites you, just like God invites us, into a relationship. The Bible is not a magic book, and it's not the code of Alabama, where you simply look up every rule and detail for living. I have one friend who calls his Bible basic instructions before leaving earth. And while that's clever, that's really not what the Bible is intended to do, okay? It's not simply a rule book to give you all the do's and don'ts, but rather to invite you into a conversation with real people, with real worries and real headaches and real jobs and real families, encountering God in their own world and figuring stuff out, right? And in the middle of that, we find that God acts in their lives and then God will do something for us as well. I'll say even more about that in just a minute. So 
I'm going to give you an example of how this how this works, how you take the text and then you learn the world and then you think about it. Uh, if you think about it, you know, your reflection upon it, if you will, from a chapter and verse from Leviticus. It's a perfect example because Leviticus is not one of those books that I don't think anybody decides they're going to read, although you might decide you hadn't read the Bible in a while and you're going to get your little cup of morning inspiration, right? Your warm cup of coffee and you sit in the windowsill and you think, I'll just dig into some Leviticus. Well, you, good luck. Uh, but I will take a, I will take a few verses because it's perfect for the point I'm trying to make. So this is Leviticus chapter 19, beginning with 17, and I'll just read it to you. Uh, this is Moses' instructions to his people. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. Okay, don't hate your family. I'm, I'm there. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. Okay, be honest. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. Okay, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. I'm down with that one, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. That's the golden rule. And thank you. I'm 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 feeling like I've read the Bible now and I've gotten some instructions. But then that's that's verses 17 and 18. Let me keep reading for just a minute. Nine, this is verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your animals breed with a different kind. Hmm. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor you shall put on a garment made of two different materials. Okay, there's a problem. Uh, I'm wearing uh, denim jeans and a wool coat right now, so I've already broken some commandment that I didn't know I had broken. However, let's let's think about it for a minute. We've got the text, and then the context is you know, you know God's people are wandering in the wilderness, you know, trying to make a home. They're ordering their lives uh, with each other and for each other. They're trying to, uh, to live live as a country uh, united under God, and for some reason. Uh, well, the golden rule is something that's always been held up as a standard, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And even Jesus taught the golden rule as something to be held up as a standard. It's also a universal maxim of a principle, or precept for living, uh, loving your neighbor, treating someone like you would want to be treated. You know, that one, my reflection on that one is that's something that's worth valuing and treasuring. But the, but the business about animals breeding with a different kind or the, or the or sowing your field with two kinds of seed or even the garment made up of two different materials, it might have meant something 3,500 years ago, but it doesn't mean something now. It might have been important in the time, in the, in the context in which they lived, but we haven't heard this passage taught Ever since, if Jesus didn't talk about it, the early church fathers, as they were ordering uh, the Christian church together, you know, they did they did never considered it as part of the creeds or doctrine or anything. So my reasoned reflection is I can ditch verses 19 and 20, right? I can ditch that part. In other words, not all the Bible is authoritative in the same way. Now, it can always inspire us because people are trying to find God in Scripture or they're trying to follow God in Scripture. But in terms of a rule, I mean, the golden rule is a rule. Uh, two kinds of fabric, uh, it's not a rule. And so you can take this as an example of how some some Scripture you can overlook and some Scripture you need to hang on to because we have a method now to read it. Uh, I'll give you a, a couple. I'll give you two real-world examples of how of how the Bible has been misused in history, and how we came around using this very method. One of these is slavery in the Southern United States. Um, there are old churches in Alabama, where I'm a minister, uh, in older places than Birmingham that date before the Civil War. There are old churches scattered throughout our state with uh, balconies in the back. Those balconies were not for the choir. Those balconies for, were for the enslaved people that Christians would bring them to. Christians living in Alabama who helped people in slavery would bring them to church with them 
thinking that they were completely faithful people because of letters in the backs of our Bible from Paul uh, to people saying, slaves, obey your master, or a letter to Philemon, uh, you know, returning a slave to his master, or uh, ordering the Roman family with daddy on top and slaves on bottom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so Christian people living in the southeastern United States during the antebellum period thought they were perfectly square with the Lord because the Bible had slavery within it. And around the turn of the of the 19th century, 18th, 19th century, Christians, especially Christians living in England, but also abolitionists living in the northern part of the United States, uh, began to say, wait a minute, this is Roman slavery is a different context than than North American slavery. It's a different, it's a different deal. It's a different attitude. Paul was saying something to the Roman world that's not the same. He wasn't condoning anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which got them thinking about the commands of Christ, uh, the golden rule, of course, but also the commands of Christ to justice and the equality of every human being, that slavery was wrong. So even over and against what would seem like explicit words against it, they were able to say that in the cause of Christ and justice, the living word of the Bible commands that we end the slave trade first and the eventual abolishment of slavery, and it would take the Civil War to do it, and it would take Abraham Lincoln using the Bible okay, in, the, in his second inaugural address to address the fact that it was a great wrong. But you can see now how the Bible could be misused before by taking the words flat and lifting them off the page and lifting them out of their Roman context as an abuse. Hey, let's go ahead and say uh, that that I'll agree with Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird, being a, an Alabama minister, one of my favorite books, Harper Lee would say that a bottle in the hand of one man is as bad as a Bible in the hand of another. I mean, that the, the Bible can be used to hurt people. I have a little more whimsical example of this, too. Uh, those of us who are of a certain age, our grandmothers used to wear hats to church. They always wore hats to church. In my denomination, if you did not wear a hat to church, they would provide a little doily for you to put on your head to wear in church because women were supposed to keep their hair covered in church. Where this comes from, again, are the letters in the backs of our Bible where Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, would instruct women to keep their hair covered in order to have an orderly assembly. Now, again, because we have lifted this from its context, generations of little girls have had to wear a hat uh, on a Sunday morning, just like their mamas and their grandmamas, until somebody finally did a little digging and said, wait a minute. The reason why women covered their hair, the two possibilities to this, covered their hair in Corinth, is this. Uh, women who had uncovered hair were dancing girls, and it was causing a disturbance on a Sunday morning because in their freedom, women were uncovering their hair and people were getting mighty, mighty upset. Paul was all about order and concentration, and so he asked them uh, to take that uh, that standard, if you will, cover your hair, girls, uh, so that we don't distract the guys when we can get something done uh, on, a, on, on the Lord's Day. That's the first possibility. And yet, I was in Corinth a few years ago, and I heard another in the in the city of the Roman city of Corinth, there was a temple on a hill called Acrocorinth, overlooking the city. Very common in their world to put a temple on the highest hill nearby, and it would be an Acropolis, if you will. And this is called Acrocorinth. And the the temple at the top of the hill was a temple where they had a ritual temple prostitution. And the temple prostitutes, I was, was explained to me by our lovely Greek guide. The temple prostitutes had shaved heads. That's how you knew who they were and you knew what they did. And so Paul was admonishing his congregation for women to cover their hair so that the temple prostitutes could attend worship with covered heads and be accepted into the assembly with no judgment. 
Either way, that's a far cry from doilies uh, in a stack in the narthex of the church uh, to put on a little girl's head, right? That, In other words, that if you read it flat without the story behind it, then you begin to miss the point. I'll say it one more time. The text must always have a context so that we can't use it as a pretext. Take the story, learn as much as you can about the background, what have we always uh, taught about it and gleaned from it, and then make your own reason reflection upon it, and God will speak to you. Now, some stories are easy to interpret. Goodness gracious, the feeding of the 5,000 or the raising of a little girl from the dead or even even Easter and resurrection. Those are stories that, that stand on their own. But a good bit of the Bible can be gobbledygook if we don't use this method. That's not the only one. I've got another one if you're hanging with me. Another thing that you need to understand when you read the Bible is it can be maddening because people living in their time, they don't think like we do. We're, we are heirs of the enlightenment, and we're the heirs of logic, and we like to tie things up in a bow. We live in a world of science. We live in a world of, of, of clean choices and binary ideas. And so, for instance, we live in a world that, that has a linear thinking or linear logic. It's a little like algebra, right? A equals B and B equals C, which means A equals C. Everything ties up in a bow. People living in the Bronze Age, which lands most of the Hebrew scriptures uh, in, in the Bronze Age, people living in the Bronze Age, people living, say, 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, they didn't think in linear logic. They thought in blocks of logic, little blocks of ideas. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So in the book of Exodus, we're told that, that Pharaoh hardened his heart and he wouldn't let God's people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then later, a few verses later, we read, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you're going to wait a minute. <laughs> Which one is it? Did, did Pharaoh harden his own heart and not let God's people go? Or did God harden Pharaoh's heart as part of the plan so they could show Pharaoh something and make a nation out of, out of slaves, right? Which one is it? And the Hebrews would answer, yes. Did you catch that? You asked the question, did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes, yes. In other words, the Hebrews have no trouble thinking in blocks of ideas because they believe that two things could be true. And then in the gap is God. The old rabbis would say, that the very first word of the Bible, which is the in the book of Genesis, it's, we call it a phrase, but it's just one word, actually. We say, in the beginning, right? Their word was Bereshit. begins with the Hebrew letter bet, which is the second letter of the alphabet, bet, which means that there's only knowledge, there's only knowledge reserved for God alone. Only God can know uh, Aleph, which is, which is A. We start with B. There's always something that we're not going to know on this side of the veil. That's an Old Testament example. I'll give you a New Testament example as well. Um, in the New Testament, we're given two ideas of heaven in the Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, we're told that uh, Jesus, as he dies on the cross, there's a thief hanging next to him who says, um, Father, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Remember that story? Well, also in Matthew's gospel, we're told that at the end of time, Christ will gather all the nations about him, everybody who's ever lived now and now who's died, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and he's going to welcome everybody in who ever did anything good, kind of like that golden rule, right? When was it, Lord, that we gave you a cup of water? Or when were you in prison and we spoke to you? When were you hungry we fed you? In so much as you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. Come into my kingdom. And they all go in together. So you say, okay, well, which one is it? When we die, do we go to heaven, you know, immediately? Or do we wait and we all go together at the end of time? And people writing the Bible would say, 
Yes. In other words, in the gap, there's some truth that we can't know. There's something about eternity that we can't comprehend. But I want you to imagine, I know this is a podcast, but just sort of draw this, draw a line on your hand. That's our linear earth. That's our linear time that we spend on planet earth. We're born and we live, you know, months, days, weeks, years, and then we die. And it's in a straight line. But when we die, we enter a dimension called eternity and draw a circle around that line, a complete circle, which goes inwards and outwards and diagonal and catty-cornered and backwards and forwards. We can't comprehend the dimension of God's time. All we can say is that somewhere in the gap, there is the truth. So when someone dies here at St. Luke's and i and I bury them, and I tell them what I believe with all my heart, that mom is with Jesus now. Mom is with Jesus now, and mom is waiting for us when we all go to heaven, when we die. Will we all go to heaven together? I believe the Bible is is true. I think there's a general experience of resurrection in God. I think heaven means we're all with each other. How it works, don't have to know, right? Blocks of logic let us know that God is in the gaps, and I can trust that God is going to take care of me. Do I expect to go to heaven when I die? Yes. Okay, so now we've we've gone over a couple of ideas. One is text without a context is a pretext. This idea is block logic. Let me bring you to another one so, so that you don't pull your hair out uh, while you're reading Scripture at home. It's the principle of repetition. That's a simple way of saying if God did something once, God will do it again. God does stuff all the time. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 7, to be precise, there's a scene where Jesus is walking uh, next to a little town called Nain in the Jezreel Valley. It's a town you can find today. Nain is on a map. People still live in Nain, N-A-I-N, Nain. And there's a, there's a dead child, and dead people were considered uh, unclean. You're not supposed to touch him. You're supposed to be away from him. Also, it's a widow's child. So in their world, they had no social security. If you lose your child, you've lost all hope of income. This woman is in dire straits. She's really in trouble. So in addition to the great sadness and unbearable grief. Uh, She's also financially in danger. Jesus walks up and he touches the bier upon which the child lays, which, which he's not supposed to do. And everyone has a collective gasp. And then he raises the child from the dead. In response, everybody calls out, oh my gosh, a great prophet has arisen among us. And I remember learning this story as a little kid thinking, well, oh my goodness, the people of Nain, they don't really know that the son of God is standing right there. They think he's only a prophet. But that's really missing the point because given the principle of repetition, something like that has happened before. As a matter of fact, in the same place 800 years before in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha raises a widow's son from the dead the same way. They're saying a great prophet has risen among us because God is in living color again. Think of the gap between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. The last Uh, words of Malachi is to dream of the prophet Elisha coming and turning the hearts of children to the parents and parents to the children. And then the curtain closes and it's 400 years. God is silent. I mean, they they stay busy. They do stuff. They they try to run their own kingdom. They're overrun by foreign rulers. And then eventually they have a, the Romans come into town and then a client king who's a madman who creates the wonder of the ancient world in Jerusalem, but they're so sad. And then one day, one of their priests named John, he was a Baptist, which was a, which was a role that they had, goes down to the Jordan River. He looks like Elijah. He speaks like Elijah. And, every, and everyone says, oh my gosh, a prophet has risen among us again. In other words, God was back in living color. And for this reason, Mark's gospel doesn't begin with Christmas, but rather with John the Baptist. He's excited about this principle of repetition. God was acting again. 
Hey, the same thing could even be said about the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes. Uh, both the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes were given on a mountain. Both of them convey the divine mind. They're ten commandments and they're ten Beatitudes. The Beatitudes being the the word the words that start with blessed, the first twelve verses of Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, where uh, he says, "You blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn." Uh, the Ten Commandments. The first four are union with God, and then the last six are union with neighbor. Hey, it's making Leviticus 19, 17 sound pretty good, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the first four commandments are love God. The last six are love your neighbor. The first four beatitudes are love God. The last six are love your neighbor. Did the same thing. In other words, on another mountain, God was doing a do-over. The, the Sermon on the Mount is a do-over from the Ten Commandments. And what am I trying to say here? Stories tend to repeat because if God did something once, God will do it again. If God did something for them... God will do something for me. This is why we learn this stuff, guys. If God will do something, and this is why we need to take the effort to get into a relationship with God through these old words and these Bronze Age stories to see that if God did something for them, God's going to do something for me today. Okay, which brings me down to the last principle that will really help you understand uh, the Bible because it can be so maddening, and I call it the principle of specificity. I'm going to use a good example. In Egypt, in Egypt, Moses goes down to Pharaoh. We've already talked about Pharaoh and his own hardened heart. He goes down to Egypt and he does things that you don't find anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, sticks become a snake. The Nile becomes blood. Uh, Moses gins up plagues and all sorts of maladies. And I want you to look at the Bible carefully, remembering that it's a library and not just a narrative book. Okay, remembering this library, God doesn't do that anywhere else. God doesn't need to do that anywhere else because they live in a world of magic in Egypt. And so God is using Moses to one-up their sorcerers and their priests and the, and the Egyptian magic that they all live in uh, to show who, which one is the real God, right? which one is the God who will save them not only from death, but also from bondage and slavery and build them into a nation. That's a specific story with a specific miracle, but it doesn't happen anywhere else. Okay, here's an example from the New Testament. In, in the Galilee, in my last episode, I talked about over half the Gospels taking place in a 10-mile arc, and one of these common miracles that might happen are exorcisms. Now, as it turns out, God's people lived in the Galilee for centuries, very, very close in a small area next to their Gentile neighbors, and they started picking up on Gentile ideas. And one of these Gentile ideas was, would be to ascribe all kinds of illness or maladies, or even mental illness to demonic possession. Uh, now, th these stories are written in a way that uh, I think something was happening there. I don't think it always had to be uh, a demon, uh, a speaking demon in their mind, although I'm not going to say that that could never happen. Evil is real. Uh, there are dark spirits that we don't need to brush up against, and I do believe in spiritual warfare uh, because I've just seen good people uh, get attacked by, by wrong that's not God's will. I'm not going there, but what I want to say is that, for instance, uh, in Mark's gospel, we're told that there was a man who lived in the tombs with a thousand demons in his mind. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And they say, Legion. And for, for good reason, and for because I go there a lot with groups, I've been to the tombs, and I've been to the city where the man is from, and the city uh, above the tombs is a place where they use Roman soldiers, retired legionnaires, uh, to offer to work as security uh, for there. And it's no stretch to imagine that this was a guy burned out over a lifetime of murder and warfare and PTSD and the name of the demons in his mind, Legion. He was just a murderer who had gone mad. And Jesus healed him 
healed him of his disease, right? But let's just go, let's just read it flat for a second and say this. What if these exorcisms really were demons and Jesus were casting it out? They lived in a world where they believed in demonic possession and they saw it everywhere. Great, so Jesus does it there. Paul doesn't do it that way. Uh, The prophets don't do it that way. It happens in Galilee in this particular time in history because this is the language that they used in the world they inhabited. This is the principle of specificity. Now, let me make a modern application. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. If I were to exercise a demon on the street uh, in front of the taco place uh, just around the corner from my church, St. Luke's would be packed on a Sunday morning because everybody would want to see the show. And hey, if spiritual warfare is real, and I believe it's real, the devil knows this too. The devil's not going to attack us that way. Instead, what the devil's going to do in our community is kill us slow. Oh, it won't be a demon. It'll be addiction, or it'll be anorexia, or it'll be depression, or it'll be any, or, or family strife. It'll be anything uh, that can distract us and hurt us and, and keep us from being the people that God wants us to be. So we read stories in Scripture. We read that Jesus heals, and then we we have the dawning awareness that if God did something for them, God will do it for us. It doesn't have to be their way. It could be our way. We can be healed and we can go home. Now, I hope I've taken just a snapshot of a few stories to show you a few methods. I'll go over these one more time. A text without a context is a pretext. So learn the story behind the story and then reflect on it. Uh, Remember block logic. Two things can be held in tension Two things can be true that are seemingly contradictory. Remember the principle of repetition. God did something for them. God will do something for me. And then remember the principle of specificity. Just because you don't see it the way that they saw it, it doesn't mean that it's not real. It was real for them. God will do something real for you in your time. So now, good luck reading the Bible. And we'll see you next time.